We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Microsoft Teams is helping a bicycle company reinvent the way that they work. We make bicycles for everyday riders. Once the pandemic hit, we started doing virtual visits. All of a sudden, we could open up our showroom to customers around the world. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash Teams. Podcast. It is Wednesday, September 4th. Nick Whalen back with John McKechnie. John, we finally have a full week's worth of games to talk about. Last week we were very much limited, mostly to the Miami, Florida talk, uh, but a ton of teams were in action, of course, in week one over the weekend. We had games Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, even Monday. Um, a really, really fun weekend of college football. Not too many upsets uh, at the top of the rankings. You know, the, the top 25 teams were all in action uh, and went 24 and one with the only loss being top 25 versus top 25 Oregon uh, maybe blowing that game oh, or yeah. Auburn taking that game we'll, we'll get into that uh, in a little bit but the top 25 uh, went 24 and one with Oregon as the only loser uh, outside the top 25 however we had a few upsets uh, Missouri went down despite a big game from Kelly Bryant but I think most notably uh, in a game that that some have called the the worst loss by Tennessee since World War II, uh, the Vols fell 38-30 to at home, Georgia State. Uh, according to ESPN's FPI, the fourth worst loss in terms of uh, favorite losing to a non-favorite in the history uh, of the FPI. I, I mean, we, we didn't really set out, I think, planning to talk a ton about Tennessee this week. Um, you know, I, I don't know that Tennessee was expected to, to necessarily blow out Georgia State, uh, but certainly I, I don't think this was the expectation from a Tennessee program that... 
somehow continues to to dig new depths. Uh, a program that when we were young was you know kind of coming off of the Peyton Manning years, the T Martin run, mm-hmm. um, and now it's you know we're coming up on two full decades now of Tennessee really struggling to be relevant not only in the SEC but nationally. You know what what might end up being worse about this Tennessee loss, if you can even make it worse, is that f- among these like kind of group of five teams. Uh, pulling upsets, you know, over the course of the last few years or anything like that. It's not like Georgia State is good. Like Georgia State, I I think there's still a very distinct possibility that they end up with four or five wins this season. So like, not only right. is it going to end up with Tennessee losing this game, like you said, with, with where they were, you know, expected to win by like over 30 points, something like that, and they, they underwhelmed their their expected total by that insane of a margin. But Georgia State, I think, could go ahead and make that look worse over the course of the season. It's not like yeah. they lost to a Georgia Southern, who I think is going to prove uh, over the course of these next mm-hmm. few weeks or over the course of the season. They were a 10-win team last year, and they got absolutely smoked right. by LSU. Like That was really impressive by LSU, I think, and, and we, we'll mm-hmm. get into them in a little bit. But like Georgia Southern by the virtue of them looking really good the rest of the season, it's going to make that LSU win look like a little bit more impressive when people talk about it. But this Georgia, Georgia state uh, team is going to be terrible. So that's just going to make Jeremy Pruitt. I think the, the faith in Jeremy Pruitt in Tennessee is shook in, mm-hmm. in a way that might not be reparable at this point. Right. Fair or not. All that is to say Georgia state's quarterback, Dan Ellington is no Armani Edwards. No, no, no. sir. Not even an Arm- Armani Rogers. Yeah. From UNLV. We'll get into him later too. Well, I mean, I think there was the the anniversary of that um, Appalachian State Michigan game was this past week, so they they did some features on on Sports Center and whatnot, and you know I think you and I probably remember that like it was yesterday. I mean that was such a big deal. Michigan at the time was such a juggernaut, um, you know, with with the skill position players that that we all remember from that era. Losing that game seemed like the end of the world, and ultimately it was kind of the demise of Lloyd Carr. Um, but watching the highlights from that game, you know, it's kind of crazy missed tackles it's yeah. guys you know making catches they usually don't make for Appalachian State there was a blocked field goal of course at the end that sealed it it, it kind of as massive of a loss as it was for for Michigan it did feel a little bit fluky sure. in, in just the way that it that it all transpired it was kind of the classic underdog everything breaks right for them whereas this game was not that at all I mean this is a game Georgia State didn't throw a Hail Mary at the end and, and win on the final play I mean they were up 38-23 yeah, in so this game. Tennessee, Tennessee was a garbage time touchdown. Right, exactly. This could have been worse. And, and you know, making it a one-score game, you know, I, I guess I would never say this is anything to cling to for Tennessee, but it, like you said, it could have been worse. It, it was uglier, I think, than the final score even implies. And, you know, I, I it's, it's hard to say, you know, what this means, I guess, for the future of a program. But, you know, I, I would argue that a singular loss like this to a team like Georgia State can be more damaging than just having a middle of the road to a rough year in conference. You know, th- those games are a little bit more, are a little bit easier to explain away. You know, you go lose to North Carolina or uh, South Carolina or Kentucky or Arkansas, whoever it is. You know, athlete to athlete, they're at least a little bit closer. This is this this is one that even if you don't follow college football that closely you probably heard about this game you know if you're if you're a recruit at any level even if you're not even considering going to Tennessee what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear Tennessee now it's like oh that's the team that lost to Georgia State at home and it's the kind of loss that can really impact um you know multiple years you would think of recruiting I mean like you were saying there and and recruiting is Pruitt's strength here but we'll we'll see you know how that sales pitch is going to go now that when like you said the first thing when you think of Tennessee right now is going to be that embarrassing loss and also 
also uh, the turnover trash can fr- from a couple of years ago under Butch Jones. But I mean, yeah, the, like you were saying with with Michigan, it signaled the end of Lloyd Carr, but it also sent Michigan into nearly a decade worth of ineptitude. I mean, yep. from from 2008 up until 2015, when when they got Harbaugh and got things kind of turned back around, that's an eight year span with, with two coaches that you know their eras went terribly between Rich Rod and mm-hmm. uh, with Brady Hoke. So I'm not guaranteeing that, that this sets Tennessee back for a decade, but I mean, it is that kind of loss that that is going to hang over them for a while and they need to rectify things in a hurry. And it starts this week against a BYU team that I think is going to be really, really tough for them. Uh, that line is awfully skinny. Uh, I think like Tennessee at home is maybe like a two and a half point favorite as we're sitting here uh, right now. So that goes to show you that Vegas's faith in, in this Tennessee team is shook and that, uh, you know, BYU is going to be you know, not fun to play against for 60 minutes uh, coming up this weekend. So Tennessee, uh, dark days, uh, especially for a program that, that everything had kind of gone storybook over the course of this offseason with, with the way that they were able to pull in mm-hmm. really good recruiting class. You know, they, they brought in Jim Chaney, the offensive coordinator from Georgia, it seemed like. And they had all the returning experience, especially on offense, uh, to seemingly make this work. And we had kind of almost aligned ourselves into being a Tennessee ally on the, on this pod. We you know, we were like, oh, how do they how do they not make a bowl game? How do they not win seven games? And now it's like, ugh. Yeah, we'll see if they even make make a bowl game here. So pretty ugly start there for Tennessee. Yeah, I, I believe we had gone game by game. You know, we were talking about some of the really difficult schedules that teams like Auburn and Texas A and M have, and you know, we counted Georgia State as an automatic win. You know, one and zero. They got Chattanooga in a couple weeks. You know, that you would think would be an automatic win, and you know, certainly they probably won't lose to two teams like that uh, in the span of three weeks. But it just changes your entire perception. You know, now it's almost impossible to imagine. Tennessee going into the swamp on September 21st and and winning that game and even you know even less imaginable that they put up a fight against Georgia two weeks later or against Alabama on October 19th so um, yeah a loss like this I mean it, it can completely flip the perception of how you view a team fair or not um, but but you know when it's when it's a loss to this degree I, I think it's mostly fair absolutely we do need to address Hugh Freeze I mean so <laughs> I was uh, I, I was in the North Woods this past weekend I uh I was able to watch more games than I thought I'd be able to. Good. I had to do some uh, maneuvering of the kind of satellite thing uh, at the TV up there, but had of course a lot of the foil hat. Right, a lot of these games were uh, were on national TV, which was nice. Um, but I, I, you know, I was checking my phone throughout the day, and I'd I've seen these photos of Hugh Freeze, or who was purported to be Hugh Freeze, laying in a hospital bed coaching, and I. I just never put it together that it was actually him. I thought it was some extended Twitter joke that I'd missed. Something had happened throughout the day and you know, people were joking about him coaching from a hospital bed. And then a couple hours later, you texted me and you're like, you need to see this. Like, you know, this is real, right? And my answer to you was like, no, I didn't know it was real. At, at which point I was able to read up on it and, and find out that it was, in fact, extremely real. Uh, I, I mean, some other podcasts, this has been picked up nationally. That I mean, this is a football guy, possibly an all-decade football guy move. Um I, unprecedented, right? I mean, the only thing better would have been if he wheeled the hospital bed onto the field and had like <laughs> a little IV set up, up right? Straight and, up dangerous, yeah. Maybe maybe set up like a little railroad track that he could kind of go up and down <laughs> like the Booger Mobile. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it and it was also surprising to find out that he he had a staph infection in his spine, yes. which sounds extremely scary. He he didn't seem he was on part of my take the other day talking about it. Didn't seem too concerned in typical typical coach speak. Uh, but yeah, I mean, an incredible, incredible week one. Yeah. Dino Babbers kind of giving him the, the the wave or the salute from the class field. move, all class. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
yeah, incredible but, overall. I, I don't really have any any thoughts on it. I just think we need to acknowledge it. Yeah, just, whereby you were like off having a social life on, on Saturday. I was <laughs> immensely online. I could not have been more online on Saturday. So like once I picked up the whiff of, of Hugh Freeze like being in the hospital bed, the, the progression of it went that like it sort of sounded at first that he was going to be like coaching via Skype from the hospital. Like he's coaching from his hospital bed and, you know, on the university's campus in the hospital there. It's like, yeah. and then Yahoo sports college, football, your Yahoo college football or Dr. Saturday, uh, somebody under the Yahoo umbrella catches the, the photo, the famous photo now of Hugh freeze in the press bar or in the coach's booth, uh, in the stadium, they, they knocked out a wall apparently to accommodate the hospital bed. And he's, and there he is, you know, <laughs> just coaching. And I had some choice tweets about, uh, you know, what could have happened during that game and maybe things he could have done during the, uh, during the halftime speech to really rally the troops there. Um, but that was just unbelievable. Someone put a, an, an incredible Photoshop up. I think I DM'd it to you of like the Iowa players waving to yes. the to the children's <laughs> hospital. <laughs> and the next photo is just Hugh Freeze giving the thumbs up from the coach's booth. So really just unparalleled weirdness. Only in college football could this kind of thing yep. happen. And, you know, Hugh Freeze... Um, the the guy that said only my wife could handle my junk at, at the uh, Liberty Press Conference when he yep. was hired on, um, really a sterling beginning to it to his career uh, with the Flames. So USC, uh, you have written on our document here. USC season is over. Yes. JT Daniels done for the year. Um, kind of a a fairly unique situation, but one that's becoming maybe a little bit less unique um, given how the the transfer portal has kind of exploded these last couple of years, but. USC loses Jack Sears a couple of weeks ago when it's announced as expected that he wasn't going to be the starter. You know, of course, he couldn't have known this, but, you know, had had he been aware that JT Daniels would be done for the year halfway through week one, presumably he would stay and take over. Uh, so now, you know, USC is in a really, really bad spot. Obviously, a lot of pressure on Clay Helton regardless this season. He's going forward now with Keaton Slovis, who is a true freshman quarterback. And, you know, by USC standards, not you know not, yeah, not he's like a roster filler right he was like the 700th guy. overall recruit in yeah. the class 26 ranked pro style quarterback um you know certainly someone that was able to manage the game and get him that win over fresno state but not the type of dynamic quarterback uh that we're used to seeing at usc and 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 my kind of question to you earlier was is this in some ways a blessing in disguise for clay helton does this kind of give him an out if and when usc has another mediocre season or do we now have to adjust our expectations and say, you know, at what point can you stop blaming your freshman quarterback? You know, if USC finishes this year four and nine or five and seven, whatever it might be, um, is that enough given the quarterback situation for him to retain that job? You know, this is this is going to lean heavily on on Lynn Swan or whatever they end up, whoever ends up being the AD there. I, I don't know how much longer Lynn Swan's going to be able to hold on to his job, let alone Clay Helton. But if you're a USC fan, this is the worst possible scenario because not only does this sink your season, but it could theoretically, if the ineptitude at USC continues in terms of how the athletic department has been functioning under Lynn Swan and, and holding on to Clay Helton in the face of a terrible five and seven season last year, just because they kind of gave up or gave a fight against Notre Dame in the last game of the season, retaining him like you don't need to do that if you're USC, but they did. And now you have to wonder if you're USC that Helton gets a pass for however bad this season goes. I think it needs to go like biblically bad for USC, like worst season in program history in, in order for him to get canned. And if they end up winning three, 
four games, then I think that there is a chance that Helton still holds on to it just because they're like, oh, well, JT Daniels was was hurt from, from the first week on. So you got to just give this season a mulligan. You got to treat it with an asterisk. But we'll see how you know, how much that comes to fruition, because in the coming weeks, you got to figure they're going to lose to Stanford. They're going to BYU. That that might be that very well may be a loss uh, going against Utah, going against Washington. So they could be staring and Notre Dame after that. So they could be staring here at five consecutive losses from the time that we're talking today up through October 19th when they when they host Arizona. One and five, it will it will kind of give us a better indication of how safe uh, Clay Helton's job could be and what those limits of of expectations are for him. But otherwise, I mean, from from a fantasy perspective, it kind of elevates the running backs. Uh, Stephen Carr, Vave, uh, Malapai both looked really good this past weekend. But you got to worry about the receivers uh, that you drafted, be it Michael Pittman, Tyler Vaughn's. Um, Amon Ross, St. Brown, all those guys could, you know, see a step down in production w- without uh, Daniels back there. I think the the drop off between him and Slovis is going to be pretty serious. I almost feel like if they go two and three over these next five, that's a huge victory. You know, four of those teams that you named, Stanford, Utah, Washington, and Notre Dame, are are ranked teams. Three of those teams are ranked inside the top fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and and USC does get Stanford at home. They get Utah at home. But you're going to Washington. You're going to Notre Dame hard to imagine either of those are wins so i think we might find out really really quickly you know what the trajectory of this season is going to be i I don't think there's a a true possibility that it turns into a good season for usc but it kind of has to go into damage control mode um and to answer your 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 question earlier the worst season in program history uh, at least in modern history we're talking like post 1960 three and eight in 1991 under larry smith larry what were you doing bud (laughs) sleep at the wheel larry um we talked about Tennessee. Uh, do, you, do you want to talk about North Carolina, South Carolina? Um, you know, just just shame on South Carolina for for blowing that game. Uh, Stephen Garcia would never. Stephen Garcia would never. Um, we did see a significant injury from that one. That one that Jake Bentley like was terrible in the fourth quarter, and then it comes out that he's got this pretty serious foot injury. So South Carolina is going to be turning to uh, Ryan Holinsky at quarterback, a true freshman. Um, so that that'll be interesting moving forward. Um, and Sam Howell, the the North Carolina quarterback, looked really good, really impressive for for him uh, being in his first game. Mac Brown coached about as conservatively as you could possibly imagine and still pulled out the victory. So, uh, must champ, uh, you gotta be, you gotta go back to the drawing board mm-hmm. there, or take a lap bud, because that, that doesn't look particularly good, but that, that's pretty much the only parting takes, uh, from that game is just South Carolina is not where they thought they were. All right. Um, not, not an overwhelmingly great slate in week two. Um, but we do have a few headliners at the top LSU at Texas, um, I was listening to the radio on the way here this morning, and I, I, whoever was on was calling this the biggest game for Texas in 13 years. And it's hard to make an argument against that, I guess. You know, there have been a few big Red River, uh, Red River games, sure. Um, but in, you know, until pretty recently, you know, Texas has just not really been all that competitive relative to Oklahoma. So LSU comes in a five and a half point favorite in Austin, 55 and a half over under for this game. Um, are you surprised that LSU is favored by almost a touchdown in Austin? Um, the, I was I was very curious as to see what this line was going to be coming into the week. And I think it was like four and a half on Monday. So I think it's actually grown a little bit in, in LSU's favor to five and a half. And honestly... Texas played really well uh, this past weekend. They totally just took care of business the way that they should against Louisiana Tech, and, and they will be at home. It is going to be rocking in Austin. Um, but LSU, I think 
a lot of times programs, you know, in coach speak in, in the off season, you hear like, you know, we're going to be more multiple. We're going to spread things out. We're going to get the ball in our playmakers hands. Like all those platitudes absolutely go out the window. And, and I think coach O had the biggest death grip on like it, the second things go wrong. We're just going to go back to I formation football here, but it really feels like w- with the new infusion of their, they, they have the same offensive coordinator, but they brought in like a passing game analyst from, uh, from the saints that, that kind of opened things up and, and was one of the main architects of like unleashing Alvin Kamara on the NFL. Mm. So I think that this LSU offense, like it actually has, it doesn't just have the talent anymore without the scheme behind it. It actually has the scheme too that to bring it into, you know, not, not even just this century, but this decade style of, of, of offense. And Joe Burrow seems, it looks like it's perfectly tailored for him. And then on the other side of the ball, good God, man. I mean, Again, Georgia, Georgia Southern, a very, very strong group of five team and, and certainly one that racks up yardage over you over the course of 60 minutes. And yet LSU held them to under 100 total yards of offense last 24 week. 24 passing yards. That is, yeah, that's insane. I mean, you don't expect them to throw a ton, but I mean, you expect them to at least get a, get a run or two. But I mean, between Grant Delpit and Caleb Von Chason and that defensive line, holy smokes, man, like LSU is just so dangerous. And then if you're Texas... You're talking about their third string quarterback coming into the season, having to be their backup running back now, because the, yep. the, after Keontae Ingram, their starter, their next three running backs coming into the year on scholarship are all out for this game. So Texas not being able to get get the run going in this one, because I don't think Ingram necessarily will. Um, I think it's going to be a huge problem and this. Really, this really is going to be the potential Heisman game for Sam Ellinger one way or the other. If he wins this game, it's going to be because, or if Texas wins, it's going to be a hundred percent because of him. And if they lose it, it's not going to be his fault necessarily, but I mean, it, it, it could, you know, end up keeping them, keeping him out of the Heisman consideration and keeping Texas out of the playoff conversation. Is there a slight chance we get some Joe Burrow Heisman talk? If LSU wins this game and we'll he looks get, good, we'll get it in. Yeah. It'll, it'll go away eventually, but like it, It'll be, you know, he's a nice little September Heisman candidate, yeah. I think. Played five touchdowns in the first half mm-hmm. on Saturday. Um, I think he only missed like four passes. Yeah, like he, he was 23 yeah, he, of 27 for 278, five touchdowns. Three of those uh, went to Terrace Marshall yes. as well. And Stud at least two of them were, were actually very impressive throws. I mean, the other three were pretty much wide open, but he had, a, he had one where he was rolling right and basically threw it between two Georgia Southern defenders. Uh, and snuck it in there so I was impressed I mean you know you kind of have to take it with a, a block assault against Georgia Southern but um, kind of mirror images in terms of performances for LSU and, and Texas in week one so you know I mean do you think it's it's the running back depth that that factors into this line it's just you know Austin's going to bring it you know Texas is jacked up for this game it, it just seems crazy to me that this isn't a little bit closer in, in terms of the line yeah I mean it, yeah that it's this far on the side of LSU it is kind of wild but I mean I'm kind of there with it I think that LSU is is probably the better team top to bottom um that defense with Dave Aranda mm-hmm. and the talent that I mentioned is pretty at, just like out of control there um so I'm expecting LSU to win this one rather rather comfortably if you know if I had to fire on one side here it would be definitely on LSU minus five mm-hmm. and a half I think they end up winning by a touchdown maybe even 10 points the other big game on Saturday Texas A&M at Clemson this is a top 12 matchup that features a 17 and a half point spread unreal um, which which is incredible I mean Texas A&M looked great going up against Texas State I mean a, a terrible team um, they, they had four four interceptions of Gresh Jensen and Tyler Vitt. Uh, two guys who are just normally so good. You're Tyler really, Vitt, really I actually have on a, on like a super <laughs> like on like a forty man roster Jesus. fantasy team. It's it 
even that hold yourself, made me, man. Yeah, I need to get. You a have the myself. backup quarterback for Texas State, or is well, he the starter? I thought he was going to start. <laughs> That's no defense. It, it, you're right. It, it's all terrible. <laughs> you have Lord. to drop. You have to drop him and pick up Gresh Jensen. Um, but Kellen Mond looked good. He he did throw a pick, but 19 of 27, 194 yards, three touchdowns. Also ran for one. Trevor Lawrence threw two picks. He did. He did. And I, I noticed that uh, the media, big football, just swept that under the rug. I, I watched. I watched that Clemson game um and and you know saw the picks live i saw it happen i saw the stats and then they showed that highlight on sports center and on college football live made no mention of the interceptions they just kept they just kept showing the, no, the you're T not Higgins allowed to touchdown. know about those right yeah. yeah they just glossed right over it i mean that was the biggest storyline of the game i thought is you know i mean obviously you're not concerned about trevor lawrence by any means but you know seeing him throw two picks yeah. in the season opener against an inferior opponent is a storyline are we yeah are we just never going to punish him for right. anything that he does it was, it was like, not mentioned if, at all it's it, crazy you know, if he throws a bad interception it's it's always never his fault like right. that that seems a bit crazy to me and yeah it, you know for a guy that you know he is going to be this generational quarterback talent nobody's denying that but uh you know let's let's play both sides here let's uh yeah. you know let's keep let's keep it on the up clemson of course look great though in that game uh no no real Run concerns ins- they're just stupid overwhelmingly talented at the offensive skill positions um i think they answered some questions losing so many guys on that defense as well um this one feels fair i mean as talented as texas a&m is i i mean i would be very surprised if this is not a comfortable win you know maybe you know we, we've seen a&m played at alabama fairly well for half a game um they hung in there with clemson yep. uh last season and I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if if this is close for a quarter and a half or, or even two quarters but I mean, in terms of talent, Clemson is, has reached that Alabama and that Georgia type of plateau where even even when you're going up against another team that's bringing in top five, top 10 recruiting classes, there's still that that kind of another level and you know bringing back so many guys from last year's team offensively. Um, I think this is going to be a really fun game, and I, I think it's, in the end, a comfortable win for Clemson. Okay, so yeah, the, there's a lot in play here. This is a potentially program or tenure defining win for, for A&M and, and for, uh, for Jimbo Fisher specifically. And for them to hang in with Clemson the way that they did last year, inheriting a full Kevin Sumlin roster pretty much was really impressive. Um, coming into this game, 17 and a half, like that, that little half point I think is very, very interesting in terms of getting me uh, to think about A&M covering this one. Uh, but one thing you do need to consider is Kellen Mond was markedly worse on the road and um, in a neutral site games last year. I think his yards per attempt uh, dropped into like the like the six and a half range. He was his completion percentage got worse. And I think his touchdown to interception rate was like a like five touchdowns, seven picks uh, on the road and in neutral site games last year. So uh, pretty shaky on the road. And, you know, this is de- this is I don't I don't refer to Clemson as Death Valley, but I mean, it's a it's a hell of a home field advantage uh, for for the Tigers there. It's going to be really loud. It's going to be raucous. It's going to be that that prime afternoon uh, slot. Um, so if Mond shows up, then I think A&M really does keep this competitive because the defense is good. And, and I mean, if Georgia Tech can force Lawrence into some mistakes, uh, then I think A&M certainly can as well. And Clemson doesn't have the best offensive line in the world. It, it's really well designed how they how they run things. Um, but I think A and M could you know maybe make them sweat a little bit in the mm-hmm. trenches there. Um, so I, as it stands right now, I think there's a there's a pretty decent chance I would I would side with A and M covering that seventeen and a half if it gets closer to. 17 or 16 or, or anything like that, then then I'd side with Clemson there. Um, but A&M, I think, is going to give them a good shot. It just starts with mm-hmm. Calamond. 
A&M was one of only two teams, the other being Syracuse in a game where uh, injuries were a major factor, of course, for Clemson. Uh, one of only two games that Clemson didn't win by at least 20 points last year, and that includes both college football playoff games. So, That's right. Yeah, I mean, obviously a different Clemson team. Um, you know, when they played in week two last year, it, the quarterback position was was a much bigger question mark than it is now. Um, but we've seen we've seen A and M play this team close. I, I don't think they're going to be intimidated by no. any means. Uh, I just think at the end of the day that the talent gap is too much. I see you have Illinois UConn highlighted here. Please explain yourself. Um, you know, it it doesn't get much worse than that. Uh, from especially from like two FBS schools with one of them being a power five team Uh, maybe like a Rutgers UConn would would kind of also fit this bill but uh, there's low-key going to be some fantasy interest in there there's going to be no defense being played Uh, UConn almost lost to an FCS team I think it was Wagner uh, last weekend so Illinois if you're looking for like cheap streaming options this week in your in your season longs or, or in daily even um illinois could be kind of like that that little cheat code just because uconn yeah. is really that bad yeah if you can grab aurelius ben or if you can grab juice williams, juice williams you're gonna yeah, want to do that immediately um all right let's talk dfs do you want to start with DraftKings? yes please let's do it so looking outside of the top 25 nebraska colorado um in this in this slate where uh, you know, a lot of these games are, you know, Wisconsin, Central Michigan. Um, you know, I think you or who else is uh, Michigan plays Army, Ohio yes, State, Cincinnati, staying, a lot of those type of games. Game. Right. You have a lot of those type of games. Um, Nebraska did sneak into the top 25. They are number 25. Uh, they go to Colorado, which beat Colorado State last week. Kind of a, a bit of a grinded out game, but a good win for Colorado. Um, this is one of the games mid-afternoon that I think, you know, it, it does go up against A&M Clemson, so I'm not going to claim to be watching it play for play. Um, but it's going to be a really interesting one to keep an eye on. I think a, a very big game for Nebraska in their quest to be capital B back. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, very interesting from a DFS perspective as well. Yes. So we, we got a pretty high implied total here. I believe it's into the 60s there. So we're, we're expecting a good amount of points on both sides. I think Adrian Martinez at 7,000 is a really, really affordable quarterback, especially when, you know, you have Trevor Lawrence and Kellen Mond both being more expensive and, and facing obviously much better defenses than what Martinez is going to be going against. I think we can almost profit off of how shaky Martinez looked last week. I think uh, he was only available or the Nebraska game was only available on FanDuel last week. I had him and he only had like seven fantasy points or something like that. I don't expect that to continue. I think they just looked a little bit sloppy against South Alabama kind of took that one for granted don't see that being the case this year I think that they had a really close kind of heartbreaking loss last year in what was actually their first game of the season because their first uh, week one got uh, lightninged out for them last year so and it ended up being kind of a chippy game uh, between the two of them this is an old-timey big 12 uh, matchup uh, of days of yore and I think Martinez is going to rip up this Colorado defense so I like him a fair bit and I think JD Spielman his number one receiver or who I believe will be his number one receiver when it's all said and done um, he is one of the more like mispriced guys on this entire Mm -hmm. slate in my opinion he checks in at 4700 i don't really see him getting only three targets uh once again there's almost no way that that happens he's such a big playmaker and such a big part of that offense um you got to figure that he's going to get fed a fair bit and wandale robinson the freshman that got 10 targets last week you got to figure that that continues as well so both of those guys are going to be high high target high quality target guys as well that that i think you can round out your your uh your lineups with i'm gonna have spielman 4700 almost everywhere there 
I thought the same thing about your Big 12 comment. Like Nebraska to me is still, you know, it's it's been close to a decade now and they're they're still not a Big 10 team to me. They like, haven't I, earned their stri- pinstripes. Yeah, it's Missouri is still in the Big 12 to me as well. I yeah, Missouri, Nebraska and Colorado were always kind of on that same tier and it's just the days of Chase Daniel, the days of I don't even know who's who was good for Colorado back Mason Crosby, <laughs> Maurice Purify for for Nebraska like yeah, it's it, it doesn't seem right. It really doesn't. Um so you're not you weren't put off by Nebraska struggling and they needed three defensive touchdowns to beat uh San Antonio or uh, South Alabama at home. Um like you said Martinez struggled through a pick, didn't have any touchdowns, didn't really get anything going, was hurt by sack yardage yes. on the ground. Um but I think more concerning than him you know, individually is Nebraska didn't even rush for 100 yards in this game. 44 carries for 98 yards against the South Alabama defense. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not quite convinced that 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 you know there's going to be a huge bounce back right away against a significantly better opponent. I mean, that that's definitely those are definitely fair concerns, and those are definitely like numbers that that make you think twice about mm-hmm. what your preseason evaluation was when it comes to Nebraska. But I mean, I was so on the Nebraska hype train and the numbers kind of backed it up for, for a lot of that. I mean, they looked so dominant down the stretch last year on the offensive side of the ball that uh, I was really shocked. That was one of the big takeaways mm-hmm. of this past weekend is how clunky they looked against South Alabama. I, d- I expect it to click, but more than I expect that to continue. Um, so I think that they will bounce back. Yeah. I think this is a buying opportunity. If there, if there's anyone out there that, you know, is trying to get rid of their Nebraska guys, yep. uh, go ahead and try to target them because I think that they start to bounce back. And I mean, Colorado gave up a ton of offense to Colorado state this past week. And I know that mm-hmm. game is always kind of a crazy shootout like that. Um, but I think that there's, there's some stuff in that Colorado defense that can be exploited a little bit there. I think Martinez just needs to get, uh, or keep the defense a little bit more honest via his passing, but if he can do that, then uh, I think Nebraska will, will start to click and get into gear there. Um, and then on the Colorado side, obviously LaVisca Chenault, stud, really expensive uh, on DraftKings. Only saw you know a handful of targets last weekend. I don't really expect that to happen again. Um, so I, I think that he'll bounce back pretty well, but he is expensive. I think I'd probably side with like Rondale Moore over him if you're going, uh, you know, if you're picking between the two of those expensive type uh, receivers, I think Moore is a little bit more bankable at this point than, than Chenault is because um, we don't really know what this Colorado offense is exactly uh, just yet there. So uh, that's my lean as far as the elite receivers go. And then other guys to kind of like round out your roster, uh, Fontenot, Alex Fontenot, uh, 6,300 uh, at running back for um, for Colorado is also pretty interesting. He ran pretty well this past week. And then Tony Brown is going to be kind of trendy because he did three catches for 71 yards, uh, for Colorado last week, but maybe, uh, that drives down the percentage ownership percentage on Katie Nixon in that offense, who I think might be just as good, if not better than Tony Brown, certainly more established. And I think he's going to have a lower ownership percentage. So Nixon might be someone to uh, be a buying opportunity, uh, as well. So that that's kind of my read from a DFS perspective for this game. And I, I'm not really liking the the Nebraska running backs just yet. Morris Washington, interesting, but uh, I don't know if they're going to fully unleash him yet because he's got the uh, the criminal stuff going on around him. Uh, darn criminal stuff! I tell yeah. you, that'll get you. I hate when that happens, don't you? <laughs> um, Google it if if uh, you know. I, I don't want to get into what he's yeah. into. Good lord. Um, a little bit of a buying opportunity on Chenault, like you said. Um, yeah, a, a down game by his standards. His standards, excuse me. He did get in the end zone, but just three catches. I mean, he was. You know, almost comically at times, the focal point of that defense by by Colorado State, and I, I think that's something he'll see on and off. You know, throughout the year, when you're so clearly the most skilled player 
in in your offense um you know for somewhat of a middling team like Colorado that's just kind of part of the deal yep um but we'll be interesting to see if he can bounce back like you mentioned Rondale Moore going up against Vanderbilt he's the highest priced receiver on the board at 8100 Chenault just below him at 8000 then you drop into the two Clemson guys Justin Ross and T Higgins at 74 and 7300 respectively um you know you just hit on Chenault you, you mentioned Rondale Moore any interest in the, in the Clemson guys going up against A&M um, I'm going to have enough watching interest in this game that I don't need the DFS interest on top of it, honestly. <laughs> like, I just think that, uh, you know, for it's not that I'm necessarily counting out T. Higgins or Justin Ross, quite the opposite. But um, this week, I mean, Ross might be an interesting buy low candidate because, I mean, he was relatively you know kind of quiet last week especially compared to expectations and he seems to be a guy that definitely rises to the occasion the way that he just eviscerated Notre Dame and Alabama specifically in the playoff last year so I imagine he's going to come to play this week so maybe I I would kind of take him over over uh, over Higgins for this week um, just to kind of differentiate myself that way and he's he's slightly more expensive than Higgins Higgins obviously had the better week last week so if I'm picking between the two it's Ross um, but in general my lineup builds won't be featuring these Clemson receivers so much Demetric Felton at UCLA two catches 91 yards um, of course he's listed as a receiver also ran the ball 23 times for 71 yards uh, in that game against Cincinnati kind of a bizarre situation he was at uh 3500 going into week one now he's he's jumped up to 4500 what was the expectation why did he end up carrying the ball that much um and and do you like him you know at, at still a reduced price you know given the production last week you know 24 or 24.2 uh fantasy points on DraftKings. they get a matchup against san diego state um what, what are your thoughts on him in week two yeah it's just a matter of and and it was much to the detriment of my bankroll last thursday when, when joshua kelly um was suited up was ready to go um he had some knee issues earlier on earlier on in camp but had been practicing in full so he was supposed to be good to go and then chip just pulled the old whoopsie daisy on everybody and and you know he he said at halftime i, I forget who the the uh, sideline interviewer was but you know they're like are we gonna see your best player at all is that a thing that's going to happen there chip and he's like oh you know we're no i don't know i'm just like a just a guy um so that was really annoying i'm taking out that frustration on chip i I really don't like i don't like ucla chip at all but um felton like you said a receiver by trade a guy that's listed as receiver but i'm not sure uh like if josh kelly is healthy then felton obviously goes off the board because he won't be seeing those carries but i think that the ucla might be deploying one other running like a more true running back ahead of him and then there's also the matter of san diego state being good on defense so i think that like if you if you got the profit off of felton last week good on you um but i have a hard time seeing him repeating this Mm -hmm. week and i think that he might be a bit of a trap here and i think that forty five hundred dollar price tag makes it really really tempting and that that makes him an even bigger trap who are some guys at receiver you like, maybe priced under, let's say, 6000 Um, So uh, I would say Ricky Smalling is kind of an interesting guy to, to round out your lineups with. He's not someone that you're necessarily thinking about on like a fan duel, but this is full point PPR. Uh, he led Illinois in targets last week with 10, only caught four of them. You expect that rate to go up a little bit more, but I think it's going to be a pretty narrow target tree uh, for Illinois. And, you know, honestly, uh, UConn might be worse than, than Akron. So... 
that UConn or Illinois' offense could do even better this coming week. So Smalling is someone that I would consider uh, at just 4,000. Uh, Kalijah Lipscomb, a guy that was totally held in check by Georgia uh, last week by, by Eric Stokes. Um, Lipscomb is such a huge part of that passing offense that I, I think there's almost no way that he gets shut down again. Um, he, you know, he had eight yards on seven targets. I expect him to push for like double-digit targets um, this week, and I think he's going to catch a lot of them and, and kind of live up to the expectations that we kind of laid out for him. So going up against Purdue, uh, a team that gave up a ton of yardage, a ton of yardage through the air against Nevada, I think that uh, Lipscomb is a, is a really nice uh, buying uh, candidate at 5,800. So I like him um, a fair bit as well. And then um, on the running back side, um, a guy that's listed as a running, sort of like the reverse Felton, where uh, he was a running back last year, but he's he actually plays receiver now is Johnny Ford of South Florida. You didn't see him last week against the Badgers because he didn't play. Um, I don't really know the exact reasoning behind that, but the, you're he's, scared. He's a he, pretty much, um, but he's a smaller guy. He's like you know five eight, kind of a slick, slippery guy who was really really good in the short area uh, last year in terms of making guys miss. Now he's going to be in the slot, and my big thing you know to you is you watch that South Florida receiving core bricks for hands, all of them. So Ford at least can catch the ball. And I think that's a huge thing in his favor. So I think we're going to see a lot of targets for him in the slot on DraftKings. That's huge. So you do have to use either a flex or a running back spot to get Ford in there. But at 5,800 against Georgia Tech's defense, that's still kind of finding out um, its identity. I really like him a lot this week as well. Yeah, that Wisconsin game, you, you touched on it. I don't want to go too deep, but it it was a little dicey early on as Wisconsin has a tendency to do in these type of games, especially on the road. There's a weather delay. The field was slick. Um, and there was a point when they're at about midfield, I, I think probably closer to the end of the first quarter, and they lined up to punt and either, either the quarter ended or somebody called a timeout or there's an injury. I think it was an injury timeout. Um, and they, they you know kind of regrouped and decided to run the ball on fourth and one got the first down and it was smooth sailing from there on out. Yes. And they were helped, like you said, by a few pretty horrific drops in big situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it did seem like the momentum shifted right away and kind of an ideal opener, I, I think, for Wisconsin, which got a defensive toudown, which got you know four touchdowns out of Jonathan Taylor, which in a year one, Wisconsin's not going to win the national title. Yeah, his first, first ever receiving touchdown, he had two of them. I think he only had eight career catches or something like that coming into uh, Friday night. But... Um, you know, in a year that Wisconsin's not going to win the national title, it's one of those down years. Um, the ideal situation where, I, for me, everything's about getting Jonathan Taylor the Heisman, and this, you know, diversified his his portfolio of touchdowns. He Love still got it. the yardage. Yeah, I, I thought it couldn't have gone better. He looked he looked awesome. He, he looked did. he looked just as good as he, as he ever has. And, <clears throat> and like you said, uh, the if he can add the pass catching to his arsenal, which is already pretty yep. pretty lethal as it is, and I mean, just look out. I mean, he was already our number one fantasy guy. By a wide margin, but I mean, it, it could get even crazier if he's if he's catching the ball four or five times a week too. Well, his biggest threat uh, may be Travis Etienne, who went. <clears throat> I, pardon my language here, but he went hog wild in week <laughs> one. And <laughs> we'll well, well, Trevor Lawrence may have been a little bit disappointing. Uh, you know, T. Higgins, Justin Ross, maybe even a little bit disappointing relative to their talent. Travis Etienne was was not that whatsoever. 205 yards on just 12 carries. Uh, Had that 90-yarder. That that certainly helped that. Three touchdowns. um, Also caught a pass. Did lose a fumble. But, I mean, he looks every bit the part of somebody who is ready to steal Heisman votes from Trevor Lawrence. Are you fading him this week? He's priced $1,500 higher uh, than the next highest-priced player. 
he he's interesting. He's he's one of those kind of linchpins of this slate. And you know, again, I think a lot of people were scared off of ETN last week just because of the implied blowout scenario that Clemson was going to have. And you know, I was I was kind of in the in the background, like tinkering with our projections. Like I, I think last Wednesday, it's like uh, you know he. He can't possibly have more than more than you know fifteen carries in this game. So I scaled it back, and even with like I think I had him projected for twelve or thirteen carries, it was still like it was still like one hundred ninety yards and, yeah. and like two point four touchdowns or something. Crazy, yeah. So like I mean, it, we're just so bullish on him, and the the numbers are just always going to be so favorable towards him. So like even even on like a low volume uh, type of game, he can still just put in insane amount of production. This week, you figured that Lynn J. Dixon is going to fade a little bit more into the background, and, and Clemson is going to just mainly feature ETN as far as it, as far as its run game is concerned. There, so I think that we could see ETN's season high for carries, and over over time, you know he's going to break at least one. So it's an expensive piece to have in your lineup, but I think it's one that's going to end up being worth it. And I think that some people, um, maybe the people that got burned last week, won't make that mistake again. But I think there's a there's a decent amount of people that are going to be like, I'm not paying that price for a running back when I can load up elsewhere. And I think that could end up being a mistake. The quarterback position, Justin Fields, 8,900 this week. Um, pretty dynamic debut. He's the number one price quarterback on the slate. Um, I think he, what did he account for? Five touchdowns? Yeah. And like the, it was all happening so fast. Yeah. Like, it was it, the typical Ohio State early season game, right? That first one on the read option, the entire defense goes with the running back. He goes ridiculously untouched, 50 yards, you know, <laughs> was, easy touchdown. It was I, amazing. We've seen it before. It's extremely frustrating to watch as a as a Wisconsin fan, as like as the Badgers typically have to like slog out every single touchdown. And and like I said last week, I mean Justin Fields. This feels very Braxton Millery. There was a lot of lot of Georgia tweets going on. Yeah. when he was just absolutely eviscerating. I'm sure Florida that Atlantic. they were just happy to see him succeed. Yep, uh, the group me was level headed. They kept their head about it. Anyway, do you like him this week for DFS? Putting your heart aside. Um, I'd say he's a good play, but Cincinnati, I think that they're going to try to play like a ball possession type of, type of, uh, game here this week, you know, with, with Desmond Ritter and, and, uh, Michael Warren, just try to hold the ball and try to keep that Ohio state offense off the field as much as they can. So fields probably ends up, you know, hitting value for that 8,900, but it's, I don't know if it necessarily ends up being the same type of production that we saw a week ago. Um, so I don't know if I'm going after these, these super high price quarterbacks, be it Trevor Lawrence or Calamon mm. kind of like what I was saying about those uh, receivers earlier. Um, I just think that the, the defenses could be too good in this game to, for them to hit their upper range of their outcomes. So maybe you think more about like a Kelly Bryant going against West Virginia, who I think is in for a very, very long year. They don't really have like the national narrative around them, but I mean, they, I mean, they struggled against, I mean, they struggled against James Madison, who's like the best FC team but that's not good when you're when you're you know a big 12 team at home so there's some concern there I think Brian you know if he picks up the uh, the turnover issues I think that he's he's gonna be a really nice play um, at 7700 uh, Montez if you're a doubter in that Nebraska defense then he's interesting at 7300 uh, Shea Patterson I want no part of him just you know it's less about Shea Patterson and it's all about Army like doing the extreme version of what I was just talking about with fields of you know, Army last year I think averaged 40 minutes of possession per mm-hmm. game I mean they even made Kyler Murray have his lowest uh, point uh, total of the year last year he had like 15 fantasy points just because like he was on the field for like 25 yep. or 30 plays we also saw a lot of McCaffrey 
for Michigan more than I expected. I he's think he's a dynamic he, fellow. Yeah, he, he had 15 plus snaps, which mm-hmm. you know, in in the grand scheme of major college football, like Michigan in a game against Army, maybe one of the one or two of those snaps turns into a long gain or a touchdown. Um, and we we saw him rush for a touchdown in Week One against Middle Tennessee. So. Yeah, I mean, between the Army, I mean, the, the bigger point by far is is the Army time of possession. But um, when you have a guy who's not just a backup quarterback, but who's kind of used as this, I don't want to say Taysom Hill, but, you know, that, that type of weapon, not a guy who's just in when it's a blowout, who's there to sometimes vulture touchdowns away, you know, obviously yes, that lowers got, the upside. I've got, a, I've got a comp for him as far as the DFS heads from, like, from 2015 will remember this one. But sometimes Mason Rudolph would get screwed over because J.W. Walsh would come in and, and just like <laughs> just bull his way into the end zone. So maybe maybe McCaffrey becomes the, the 2019 J.W. Walsh here. And, you know, it's kind of funny, like you were saying earlier about the transfer portal kind of thinning out the depth of teams you almost feel like Michigan is placating McCaffrey and making sure that he's getting regular playing yep. time so he doesn't split no exactly and I I know you're half kidding but you have to kind of consider it now mm-hmm. you know I, I think we're seeing a lot of teams that kind of end up being gouged by you know these recruiting cycles where you think you have your guy in place and you know these use these days they just don't want to wait their turn nope I mean you look at the depth behind fields at Ohio State you look at the depth behind Jake Fromm at Georgia the list goes on and on I mean a lot of these big programs that have brought in big time quarterback recruits have had their depth Mm -hmm. uh, severely just kind of taken out from under their feet because of the the transfer portal and like I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily I think you know especially if you're quarterback you can only there can only be one quarterback really on a team that's starting at a given time so you know I don't fault any of these guys for looking elsewhere if they don't win the job but it's Mm -hmm. a I think it's like an unintended consequence of this transfer portal so we've been talking mostly about DraftKings with these prices and these matchups. Um, anything you want to note in terms of differences that you know, if you're playing on the FanDuel slate? Uh, the FanDuel one is interesting. And, and you know I think I'll just kind of have to get used to this again because FanDuel rolls with such a bigger main slate that, than DraftKings does. DraftKings this week, it's 11. Last week, I think it was 10 games. This FanDuel one, like it looks like it's like 14 or 15 games and it lasts all day. So I saw you know my my uh, my where I was in the standings of my tournaments last week when Justin Fields was killing everybody. Um, it just dwindled down to, to not very much on FanDuel because over the course of the day, you're playing like a, you know, what ends up being 12 hours worth of window of football. So many different things can happen. Um, so there's a lot more games on this one and it allows you to differentiate yourself a little bit more. And there are some games on the FanDuel slate that are you know much juicier than than what uh, DraftKings is offering. Like if you if you get some Penn State guys uh, this week going against Buffalo, like that that should be you know really like a solid uh, return on investment. You get uh, exposure to the Central Florida guys. We'll, we'll get into them when we get into betting a little bit later. But uh, UCF I think is go, is going to lay waste to FAU uh, this week. So like that's a game that that FanDuel has that um that is going to be missing on DraftKings. And then also Arkansas, Mississippi, not going to be a ton of defense being played in that game. I think both those offenses, though, are trying to kind of find their identities um, in, in the second year under their respective coaches. Um, so that that could be a game that, that has sneaky value in it as well. And I do wonder also if Tulane, um, if Auburn kind of keeps it in third gear this entire game, which is entirely possible, Tulane absolutely 
just crushed FIU last week and looked mm-hmm. good doing it. So maybe some cheap Tulane guys, um, maybe one of the running backs and, and maybe a receiver uh, for them could, could be worth worth a look there. So, I mean, that's kind of my, my view on FanDuel. It's just one that it's going to be – you got to get yourself prepared for the, for the long slog. Darnell Mooney would be the receiver of choice there, but you have to pay up for him. He's 8,100, so almost ex- as expensive as Seth Williams of Auburn. One of the differences, too, you mentioned with these slates between uh, DraftKings and FanDuel is you, you do get the Alabama game, New Mexico State. Any interest there? Um, you know, I, I don't think it was as big of a blowout as we expected in, it, in terms of Alabama putting up only, I think, 14 in the first half against Duke. I think they were scoreless after one. Yeah, and you know it ended up almost transpiring like we thought it would from a playing time perspective. I mean, Alabama went through three quarterbacks in this game. Tua was out early, even mm-hmm. though it wasn't by Alabama standards, that big of a blowout. Um, it, it does feel like maybe we get a correction here and Alabama like really, really unleashes it on New Mexico State. Yeah, and th- this will be the home opener for, for Alabama, so you got to figure that that, that uh, factors in. So I think a, a guy like Najee Harris is going gonna, is gonna to get uh, some run there, and I think he's only going to need 10 carries to he make it looked, worth it. He looked good. He's so serious, man. Yeah. Like, goodness. So he's expensive. He's 9600 and that's a lot to be paying for a guy that isn't going to be playing all 60 minutes, but maybe he makes it worth it i think to a 10 3 i think the i think everyone kind of has the book on on alabama where you kind of know that you're not getting the full 60 minutes but you're betting on Tua putting up those five first half touchdowns, which is yep. definitely possible against New Mexico State. Uh, respect to New Mexico State for agreeing to take the money to play this game, but boy, it's gonna be it's gonna be an absolute blood bloodbath. You don't usually see fifty four and a half points as mm-hmm. a spread. You'd usually you'd sooner like see that just completely off the off the yeah. books. Yeah, I saw fifty five and a half even this morning. So Vegas must know something. It's getting worse. State. <laughs> um, something we didn't mention with Tennessee too is they paid. They paid Georgia Southern $950,000 to come play that game. Cha-ching. $950,000. This is not news. I mean, this happens every time there's an upset like this or any time a game is played like this. Um, but usually you're happy to take the payout, take the 40-point loss, and move on and fund your athletic department for the year. But what a bonus. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think uh, Georgia State had some other graphic that had – uh, the U and the T both in orange, like uh, some word that, that contained both of those letters and they made sure that both looked like the Tennessee logo in there. So some great, excellent uh, mm. social media trolling for, from the folks down at Georgia State. Good stuff there. So one final note on Alabama. Uh, they only put up 42 points. Defense looked great. No concerns there. Um, you know, obviously they've, they've had some attrition in terms of injuries already. Um, but I, you know, Terrell Lewis made some huge plays in this game. Their, their linebackers, their, their front four or, or front seven, I should say, are as, as fearsome as ever. Yeah. Big um, Raekwon, so huge. Raekwon Davis is like six, seven. Yeah. They're, they're on another level in, in terms of the defensive guys still. Like I, I still feel like Clemson, you know, obviously last year they had some, some great guys on that line, but Alabama at linebacker and in the, in, in the defensive backfield is just, it seems like it's been a decade straight of just superior athletes, hard hitters, guys who are just built to go play in the NFL. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's certainly going to continue this year. But <clears throat> while, while we saw Trevor Lawrence throw two picks for Clemson um, and get off to somewhat of a rocky start by his standards, Tua looked fantastic. 26 of 31, four touchdowns, 336 yards before he gave way to Mac Jones. We also saw Tua's little brother come into the game uh, late. Didn't Very really do much. Yeah, really didn't do anything at all, but he was in the game. Um, the, the receiving breakdown was interesting because we had talked about, you know, the potential for Jalen Waddle and Devonte Smith and Henry Ruggs to all just have huge games. And 
you know, Waddle got to 90 yards on five catches. Devontae Smith had a touchdown. He also had five catches, but it was very clearly Jerry Judy's number one by a mile. Yes. And even as talented as the rest of these guys are, he is on a completely different level. Um, you know, and we, we had talked either on last week's show or the, or the show before about Justin Blackman, Michael Crabtree, the two two-time Boletnikoff winners. I would be shocked if Jerry Judy at this point doesn't join that 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 crew and become the third. Yeah, it's it's his to lose, and, and I especially you know not only just because Alabama's available on FanDuel's when it's not on DraftKings, but even even between the two of them, if I was picking between Jerry Judy and Rondale Moore for this week, I, I got to go Judy, especially on FanDuel because he doesn't need a million catches and he's not going to get a million catches, but. He is going to lead Alabama in receiving, and he is going to score probably at least two touchdowns against New Mexico State. It's just it's just bankable at this point. So, uh, ten thousand one hundred expensive, but I mean he'll he'll end up being worth it uh, for Alabama this week. And and uh, yeah, that, if you're going expensive at receiver, Judy Judy all the way, especially on Fanduel. I, I finally found the figure for this. I was looking over the weekend and and couldn't find it because watching this game. It seemed like every single one of his yards, his 137 yards, came after the catch. Like he was just yeah. juking guys, spinning backwards. You know, even his, into even the his touchdown was a uh, was one where I think almost everybody thought he was going to run out of bounds, and he just kept going and kind of half dove into the end zone. Um, but 85 of his 137 yards came after the catch, which is ridiculous. Dang! And th- so basically, you're implying there that there's the chance that you know. We haven't even seen Judy hit the deep route yet from Not Tua. At all. No. So, so that's still coming. No, his <laughs> longest catch was only 21 yards in yeah. this game, which, so which says even more about the yeah. Yards we're going to see a depth of target, you know, at yeah. at 20, and then he's just <clears> dusting <throat> the rest of of New right. Mexico State down the field there. So yeah, it could get even even crazier when it comes to Judy. And last mm-hmm. week was already pretty nuts. We need to talk about Jalen Hurts. Dude, we haven't even mentioned the Oklahoma-Houston game. Not one that was expected to be overly close. I, you know, I think Houston, after a few good years, their their brand recognition is probably higher than the quality of the team is right did, now. Maybe yeah. Th- this is a very this is very much a team that also de- that just doesn't have Tom Herman or Ed Oliver anymore. Uh, the, yeah, exactly. They, the last you know, front, dating back to what 2015 up through this past season, they had they either had one of the two or both. Now that now they don't. And I mean, we saw what that defense looks like with they. I mean, they had like Captain Lunchpail punch out the ball or take the ball from one yep. of Oklahoma's receiver running backs last week. And I'm like, that's that can't be a guy that's like contributing for like the the best group of five team. That you know, Houston. I don't know if they if they really could have done anything about it, but it feels like they didn't quite strike while the iron was hot uh, as far as recruiting goes. So they're still kind of Patrick on defense. Luckily for them, though, they don't have to go against Oklahoma and Lincoln Riley anymore. They they already. They already paid that toll, and uh, they don't have to do that again. So I look for this Houston offense to really start clicking into gear. And I'm sure I think you know what you were leading to more so was what what do we see out of Jalen Hurts? And it's like, good lord, man! Like we're going to see the best version of Jalen Hurts in this offense. I think it, it's all set up so well for him, and he's more willing as a run. Like I think that like at Alabama, like he wanted to throw more to prove that he wasn't just like the, yeah. this athletic strong guy. Um, now that he's in a situation where it's like, hey, if it's not open, like I can go ahead and run it without yeah. like being labeled only as a, right. as like an athlete running quarter. Yeah, so he ran a lot. And that's going to be amazing for his fantasy value, but he's yeah. also going to be able to unlock a lot from these receivers who, and a lot of them are really young. I mean, we saw Jaden Hazelwood make some plays in this one. He's a true freshman. He's yeah. only going to get better. Um, Theo Wees is another guy that that is going to get only better with time. So this, yeah, we were only seeing the scratching of the surface of what this Oklahoma offense could really look like. And it's, yeah. it's insane. 
Yeah, you didn't even mention you know their two best receivers. Rambo was just running away from guys yes, on slant God, routes all fast. afternoon. My God, yeah, he had one where he had, he caught like an eight yard slant and just burned past everybody immediately. Uh, and obviously, C.D. Lamb, who is on on his way to becoming a Nick Whalen personal college football hall of famer but I, I thought Hertz was awesome um he looked faster to me too you know he uh, at Alabama I feel like it was a lot of kind of you know read option he's plowing through the middle kind of yeah. these Cam Newton-y type of runs mm-hmm. where like you know, he was he's certainly not Kyler Murray or anything like that but he he looked a little bit more agile in space a little bit faster in space beating guys to the corner for touchdowns things like that whereas it was more of a power running game I felt like at Alabama yeah that's a, I love that comparison where you know he was getting out on the edge a lot more in this in this offense than he was at Alabama I think that that Cam Newton run like yeah just plowing up the middle just being bigger and stronger than everybody and just kind of letting that do the work yeah. for you yeah so I think Oklahoma you know uh like uh, was it Holly Rowe uh, talking to uh, Hertz's dad in the? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. In the in the stands, Jalen's unleashed now. He's unleashed. So yeah. this is this is going to be fun to watch. I mean, is Oklahoma going to turn out a third straight Heisman? It's not not possible. I think it's very possible. I mean, I think he at least based on what we've seen so far um, in one game against a pretty inferior opponent. Um, he'll at least be very much in the mix, you know, and that's a lot of it too, is once your name is in the mix in weeks one, week two, week three, it's, it's kind of hard to fall out as long as you play fairly well. You know, the example I always go back to is Andrew Luck, whose numbers were never all that good, but the team won and he was considered the favorite going into the year. And it almost felt like everyone else had to pry it away from him. And, and certainly Hertz doesn't quite have that type of standing with the amount of talent that we have elsewhere in the country. But you know, I mean, if you if you had to make your list after week one, he's certainly in the top four or five. And oh yeah, you know, he he's basically in that crop where it's like, all right, we somebody else has to pry it away from these guys before we we pry it away from them. So he's he's off to a great start. And you know, at the end of the day, when you when you're you get to week twelve and week thirteen, and you start tallying up the stats. You don't often go, well, he's got 50 touchdowns, but six of them came against Houston in that week one blowout. Like they all they all matter the same at this point in the year, and that's kind of my point with Jonathan Taylor is rack these up while you can because there's going to be a game somewhere along the line where you only have one or two touchdowns um so the more you can bank you know early in in these type of games the better oh yeah yeah no you you're you know the heisman scheme very well i see it (laughs) i've I've seen a heisman winner or two (laughs) um let's talk a couple bets before we do hard knocks the final hard knocks episode aired last night uh I put Central Michigan, Wisconsin on here, hoping you would have a take. I, I don't really have a take because I believe the spread is 35 points uh, in favor of the Wisconsin Badgers. That that feels a little bit high um, to me. I, I, I have to say I don't know a whole lot about Central Michigan since Dan Lefebvre left. I've yeah, the, kind of the, fallen off the map. The fighting Jim McElwain's here. Uh, yeah. You know, he's resurfaced in Michigan from being on that fishing boat <laughs> somewhere off the coast of Florida doing unspeakable things. Uh, he's there in... I forget where Central Michigan is, but it's not Kalamazoo. It's that's think, that's where yeah. Western is. Um, but yeah, I think Central Michigan, like they have a pulse now, and that they have a a, a transfer quarterback from from Tennessee who put up some numbers this past weekend. But I mean, Wisconsin's just going to plow them. They're just, I mean, you don't want to play against Wisconsin for sixty minutes if mm-hmm. you're Central Michigan. I mean. I put it to you this way, like Central Michigan is probably worse than South Florida and South Florida got to play them at home yeah. and still got plowed. So I think that this is going to be a slow burn. Maybe Wisconsin doesn't have the, the same amount of juice because it's you know not their first game of the year, but it's their home opener yep. at the same time. So 35 points is just a lot to trust with an offense that kind of lives and dies with only one player a little bit. Uh, I mean, we can see um, with 
uh, Quintez Cephas being back, that the, the passing game should be a little bit better this year. But I still think you're basically relying mm-hmm. on five Jonathan Taylor touchdowns. And while I don't rule that out, uh, 35 is just a lot of points to give the Badgers. Yeah, I did think Jack Cohn looked good. I mean, I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on Wisconsin, but shaky early on, and then kind of that turning point, like I said, when they converted that fourth to one, he was he was making a lot of throws that Alex Hornibrook only hit 50 or 60% of the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in a, a wet environment, a weird environment with a late start. Um, so that was encouraging, to say the least. There's but, some clamoring for Hornibrook down in Tallahassee now. <sighs> I was afraid that might be the case. They, yeah, so I guess we, we did, you know, we were talking about embarrassing games from week one. We, like Florida State almost got like the benefit of, of everyone else screwing up so bad that and Boise State being good enough to be respectable to where that loss didn't count as, as among the worst of the weekend. But man, if you're Florida State, whew, I I good. didn't get to catch much of that game. I, I watched the highlights, but uh, from what I've heard, Florida State's excuse was we were tired. Yeah, they were tired in their own home, home stadium. Uh, so they need to read the the Tom Herman P chart of excellence and go back to the drawing board and learn how to rehydrate because that was embarrassing. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about AM Clemson already. That one, Clemson by 17 and a half is a line. Nebraska, Colorado, um, you know, we hit on that from a DFS perspective, but potentially some money to be made here over under of 65 and a half should be plenty of points this one is at colorado uh but nebraska comes in as a three and a half point road favorite you know what's interesting about this is that colorado at home that that home field advantage especially earlier in the year is it's real i mean we saw what elevation did to teams like missouri last week having to go out to wyoming yeah well florida state the elevation at tallahassee yeah yeah, as compared to jacksonville where they were going to play that game originally yeah pretty brutal (laughs) compared to boise idaho they almost got the bends from that um so then uh what what else do we have um we had purdue go out to nevada that's not exactly playing at sea level either and we saw what happened with that so i like nebraska to win this game but i mean i think colorado can cover i think they can lose by a field goal so i I think that this is an interesting line it's going to be one of the better you know Mm non-marquee games of the weekend and and right now for as much as i've talked up this nebraska team and their defense did look a little bit better this past week the fact that they're going into elevation on the road here, I think it could spell trouble for them and they could start out a little bit slow here. See that offensive continuity uh, still kind of take some time to to uh, to get into gear there. So I think as it stands, I'd probably side with Colorado. LSU, Texas, we already hit on as well. LSU, six point favorites in that game. Stanford at USC. Um you know, we kind of is there just, even a line on this one yet? I don't know. I uh, I I had it in the document, so I, I believe I saw one, but it's just been are you seeing off the board. It's been touch and go because of uh, Stanford. They don't know what what's going on with their starting quarterback mm-hmm. yet because Costello got oh you're right really yep, it's filthy off the board hit now. from a from a you know classic Northwestern move, just yes. a really filthy, uh, despicable hit on KJ Costello last weekend. So that has him questionable for this weekend. I, I think Stanford should win this one. Um, it's going to be. I feel like we are like we always get a good game out of Stanford USC and I feel like we're a little bit shortchanged on that this year so it's too bad that that game uh kind of gets scratched off of, of like those sort of must watch mm-hmm. Pac-12 games yeah I, I thought I saw USC minus two and a half initially which was a little bit surprising given the circumstances but you know I guess maybe it somewhat equals things out if if both quarterbacks are hurt um we'll finish out with Syracuse at Maryland the Terps two-point favorites over a ranked Syracuse team they get them at home um I'll, I'll just let you I'll hand you the floor for this one yes thank you um so you know Syracuse looked pretty 
the sh- the offense looked really shaky last week against Liberty. Like the fact that like this Dino Babers offense scored just twenty four points. I get that it was on the road. I get that it was the first game of the year. I get that it was Tommy DeVito's like first like real start as as the guy at Syracuse. But we have about eight games worth of sample. Uh, you know, one way or the other with with DeVito at this point. The and opposing team's coach was coaching in a horizontal position. I, I don't think it, there are any he, excuses here. He had to pee from a bed and into a bedpan <laughs> at one point during the game, and that's like a fact. So uh, they still only scored twenty four off that they did shut down the liberty offense which actually is low-key kind of po- kind of potent but i tweeted out saturday afternoon i'm working on a take where i say that maryland wins against syracuse because syracuse is looking ahead uh, to that clemson game which is coming up next saturday i believe and that's going to be at home that's going to be wild that's going to be their home opener but syracuse i think that they're a little bit clunky and i think maryland might be a little bit better than people gave them credit for especially on offense um, coming into this year so i think that maryland i think initially syracuse was favored i and like you said now the line has moved to where maryland is a slight home favorite i think maryland wins this one outright i don't know what to make of this of the spread just yet but uh, I, you know, if, if I think that they can win, I think that they can win by more than two points. So, uh, as it stands, I I probably have to go with Maryland. I mean, Josh Jackson is such an improvement at quarterback for them. A guy that was really, really strong for Virginia tech two years ago, got hurt last year and obviously had to transfer. Uh, And then this guy, Dante Demas, um, I think a lot of people kind of wrote off this Maryland receiving core after Jay Sean Jones went down for the year with an ACL. Demas looks like a stud, um, just a big, fast receiver with good body control, um, and he's kind of the new number one for the Terrapins on on the receiving end. And then Anthony McFarland and Javen Link are both really awesome uh, running backs. So uh, Syracuse's uh, defense is going to be in for a test this week in a way that they weren't necessarily last week. And I think Maryland at home this is one of their biggest games of the year. I think they can do it. Hard knocks episode five. The conclusion aired last night. Uh, it's it snuck up on me for like the seventh straight year that it's only a five episode series. Like yeah, you, you get to the end, good. right? You get to the end of episode four, and it's like on the final hard knocks. Like wait a second, you know, every other TV series you watch, you know, it usually has eight to ten episodes, if not more. Um, so that was a, you know, it was a tough realization. Um, but of course, the NFL season starts tomorrow night, Green Bay and, and Chicago. I thought it was a solid conclusion overall. Um, you know, you can criticize the show, you know, based on some of the storylines that they follow and you know like for example Josh Jacobs getting no pub whatsoever you know yeah, the first that, round rookie would have been cool to weird. hear from that him that was weird and they showed him last night for like the first time yeah. and he had like the hood over his face yeah or I think it was pretty clear he didn't want to be involved which is fine okay. but you know for all the criticisms that people lob at Hard Knocks it is a very very well-made show and it's extremely interesting for that reason even if the storylines themselves aren't all that crazy you know which I think compared to last year this one was pretty tame Still an awesome show. That A B training montage in the pool at the end was really, really cool. I was fired up. I've seen you do that several times. I uh yeah I don't have a an underwater bike to, uh, he just apparently <laughs> tossed in a pool I think he's gonna get rusted out but whatever um, <laughs> with the jugs machine yeah just like yeah pelting balls at him and then like yeah just I would I would drown in a heartbeat if I had to like pick up two kettlebells from the bottom of a pool like that and he's like oh doing God. like box jumps underwater with kettlebells yeah. like <laughs> like I'm sore just thinking of it. like that was yeah he really does uh, he puts in the work you can't you can't say right. that about him for as much of a complete psycho as he is off the field yeah we and we hit on this a few episodes ago you know he the way that he conducts himself on the field is so so opposite from from off the field and of course that's continued today with the 
the fines that, oh. that he posted on, on Instagram. Yes, I did see that. Uh, before that, I have like a, a bit of a stay woke though. Uh, so remember the, the montage of him making all those plays in, in training camp, yeah. like just like absolutely toasting everyone that tipped ball where he ended up toe tapping. Yep. I bet you that he had the camera guy manipulate the sideline in there to make it, make it, make sure that he had two feet in on the TV. Like, I think that they like changed this shot. So like, no matter what, he, he made it look like he had the two feet in bounds. I think he had him in bounds, though. What do you mean? I mean, if you don't repaint I think the boundary. They, I think they manipulated it to, to make it look like uh, like he came down in bounds when maybe How he would didn't. you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I figured you would know. You're the video I guy. I mean, I don't. you would have to basically edit in more grass yeah. on the sideline. I don't... I, yes. I, okay, I wouldn't put it past Antonio Brown to do that or ask for that. <laughs> uh, because I will say on that, I know exactly the shot you're talking about. And if you watch the episode, you probably do too. It certainly didn't look like he came down in bounds until they showed the second shot. But he See? was very sure. Yeah. If, do you think it was like a staged social media event? In essence, yeah. Or like, you know, something to, to really round out that montage. <laughs> okay, so. well, based on the other Antonio Brown scenes that we've, that we've gotten in this show where he's opening fan mail or <laughs> training super hard or getting you know getting his body worked on like it was all it was all very positive oh yeah uh, which ran contrary to what seemed to be happening in real life while the show was going on constant news reports yeah, of him right. being insane yeah and but on the show it was like hey guys let's go you know i'm gonna go to this high school game nobody knows i'm here turns into a pep rally for him um so yeah i i would say if we were doing winners and losers of this season of hard knocks does antonio brown come out a winner or loser or neutral that's a really good question because you know i think that it's hard to isolate it. Like if you just look at at the hard knocks part of it, you'd say he's a winner. And like the the kids are really cute and they're, yeah. they're taking his hat off and running around and needed that Scully. Yeah. Uh, yeah, needed that Scully, bro. But um, you know the the training montages were were insane and it, it always painted him to be like this good guy uh, that was like kind of getting this unfair uh, shake from either you know the injury or yeah. the or the league with the helmet stuff or anything. But, you know, again, the real life reports that we see here on Rotowire and, and from the league and everything, it just it's so contrary to what it looked like on, on the show. Yeah. So I think I guess Hard Knocks alone, he's he's a winner. But I'd say overall, he's still I still think he's crazy. I think Derek Carr is someone who came off as corny over the oh, course yeah. of this. Um, I think Jonathan Abram kind of obnoxious. Maybe he'll, uh, you know, I've. I assume he won't be like that forever, but... Uh, we'll see. I, he was wearing the salmon or salmon shirt. Yeah, that was pretty bad. That was not funny at all. Who made that shirt? Why Why does he want to wear that shirt? I bet you he made it. Um, so I think... That, I wish they saw a little bit more Richie Incognito. I think that is a little, a little bit surprising. I'm sure they left a lot on the cutting room floor of, of Richie. Yeah. Uh, Luke Wilson was great. I absolutely loved Luke Wilson. Yeah. So I went from thinking he cut. was kind of annoying at first to... You know, after like the fourth straight episode of that, I was like, all right, this is just who this guy is. He's not playing it up for the camera. No. Like he's a chill guy. And like you could tell like his teammates were authentically disappointed when he was cut. You know, guys he saw on other teams who had played with him seemed to like him. Yeah. Um, so it is always cool to see that behind the scenes. Second straight year now where it seemed like most of the long shot guys they focused on and like really implied that they were going to make the team all got cut. Yeah, the last like, episode that happened last year with the Browns. This year, Wilson, Jason Cabinda, Keelan Doss all get cut. Um, Kabinda's you know, mom is like my favorite person I on know, the whole show. Right. Oh my God, she's getting so pumped. Yeah, she was very pumped that he's going to Detroit. Yes. Also interesting to see kind of behind the curtain where he gets cut by the Raiders, walks to his car, and like 10 minutes later, he's got to go home, clean out his apartment, and fly to Detroit. Like you get no time. Like they, they need you and they need to get you set up and play for that practice squad because week one's coming up. Keelan Doss ended up going to Jacksonville. 
happy to see how that. You, how are you feeling about that? I'm feeling good. There, he's on the practice squad, um, but I'm pretty confident that at some point they're probably going to need to bring someone up from said practice squad because <laughs> yep. that receiving Almost core certainly. is pretty gross. Um, I like D.D. Westbrook. I, I think talking fantasy is probably a little bit overvalued in my opinion, but we yeah, shall he, see. He crept up into like the top 70. Like it's like it's been kind of crazy. Like him, yeah. him in the 90s was awesome. Sorry to talk fantasy NFL here on this pod, but yeah, that, that mm-hmm. was kind of wild. Yeah, I did a draft on Monday and I was. I was shocked by how far he how far he's climbed and even in just the default rankings, you know, which a lot of people in this league were going by. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't really have a ton of takeaways in, of this episode. You know, it was pretty straightforward, kind of the the format of the final Hard Knocks episode. We got more Nathan Peterman using like middle school swearing. Like when he hurt his elbow, like the camera, or the mics caught him saying "freak," ah, oh, freak that hurt, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Um, he's dropped a lot it's of good oh my on the gosh brand is. for him, you know. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, but and there was one one scene where Gruden was narrating and talking about Peterman, and he he said, you know, he's like, I could tell right away that he got he had a couple bad games in Buffalo, and really had the confidence beat out of him, man. And you know, I, I it's pretty obvious that that would happen if you were in those shoes, but you know to have everybody make fun of you and call you the worst, maybe literally the worst quarterback of all time. Um, you know, and we talked earlier in this season where Gruden's getting on him about commanding the huddle. It does have to be hard to kind of have that authority when in the back of your mind, you know, most of the guys that you're throwing the ball to or who are blocking for you have, only know you because of all the picks. Be, yeah. Right, exactly. So that, that is pretty crazy. I respect uh, the thin or the thick skin that, that Peterman has there. So yeah, nothing. My hat goes off to him. I wish that that elbow issue didn't mm-hmm. end up uh, happening to him. That that really kind of stunk. I was hoping that he would end up making yeah. the team, but well, he, he technically the, did. He's yeah, on he's IR, on the R, so but not on the fifty-three. Should be okay, hopefully. Um, but yeah, it, it was good to see him maybe mm-hmm. maybe uh, get his groove back a little bit. I think there. he came away a winner. He's yeah. a sympathetic figure who, on the side, happened to play pretty well throughout the preseason. Um, and I, you know, I think most people probably didn't know anything about Nathan Peterman, the person, and he, he seems like, you know, maybe not somebody you'd want leading your NFL football team, but seems like a nice guy, if nothing else. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, I would say that he came away a winner. Uh, question for you. Were you surprised that nobody knew where Danny Woodhead went to college? And also, were you surprised that Gruden had spent time showing them how to block using Danny Woodhead tape? <laughs> uh, no, I wasn't surprised at all. I, I just don't, I mean, I don't think a lot of those guys you know, most of the guys in that room were not, they're not peers of Danny Woodhead. They're significantly younger, you know, and they don't, I think, I think people in our field know that kind of stuff. And, you know, yeah. you could pull a hundred people on the street in Madison and probably maybe one person would know that, you know, and normal people don't know where right. Danny Woodhead went to no, college. Exactly. Not okay. at all. Although yeah. I will say for, for a certain subset of people, it's because it's Danny Woodhead, people know. Yeah. And, and yeah. They know that in the same way that people know, you know, where like, I think Derek Fisher went to like University of Little Rock in Arkansas. You know, you just, you know, certain nuggets just because a guy's been in the league and it becomes a point of trivia. You know, it's like T.O. going to Chattanooga. You know, people just know that because it's kind of a unique fact. You know that Jimmy Graham played basketball. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Similar to that as well. Um, So, no, I wasn't surprised at all. I thought it was great that Gruden asked like six different people. He knew nobody would know it. I was (laughs) surprised that Gruden knew. And he seemed, he'd mentioned a couple other players who, um, you know, he was asking, he was kind of quizzing him on, on where this guy go to school. And, and, you know, obviously he does a lot of, a lot of scouting and whatnot, but Gruden never struck me as somebody who would be like an encyclopedia of college football knowledge or would like care where someone played, you know, to him, like who cares where you played college ball, you know, when everybody's equal once they get to the NFL. So I, I was surprised that he kind of seemed to have a mind for that stuff. Yeah, that was, that was interesting, but I, I guess like the, the, the counter to it is just like, you never underestimate how much Gruden like wants to know about football. 
Right. So that that's really kind of what it is because I do think you're right. Like it, he doesn't care where you went to school. Uh, he cares about what you're doing on his practice exactly. field. But uh, yeah, it, it, he does seem like the kind of guy that mm-hmm. just like has to just like reflexively like he, he needs to get all the data points on you right away. Mm-hmm. Last question and we'll wrap this up. How did this season impact your uh, opinion of John Gruden? Uh, I was, I've always been a Gruden uh, fan. I, I loved him on Monday Night Football. I thought he was great, and I, I always hoped that he would coach again. And I think him landing with the Raiders th- this past year was awesome. I, I'd give him a, a pass for last year. I don't think he inherited much of a team. Um, I'm excited. I mean, if nothing else, I'm really excited about this Raiders team now because mm-hmm. of Hard Knocks and because of John Gruden. Like, I, I think yeah. that it's it's going to be fun. I think that they're a team that you can root for, um, unless you're like an AFC West fan. Then I, then I get it. But I mean, they're not that far removed from being like you know knocking on the door of the playoffs and then oh. then Carr broke like his leg. Four a few years ago. Um. Oh, and that that was the year. I think it he must didn't. Have been, yeah, he didn't start the playoff game. Yes, and Connor Cook had to yes. start because someone else got hurt. So that was a nightmare scenario for Oakland but um yeah I'd say overall it just kind of confirmed any suspicions that that you had about Gruden just kind of being a a bit of a a lunatic but Mm -hmm. in an endearing way I think that's a great way to put it I I think he was just as like kind of zany as you would hope you know with the the mans and the knock on woods oh like you remember his like uh the referee changed his mind just like everybody's doing in this country (laughs) (laughs) i had laughed out loud when he's right and that would be how he thinks but it's authentic you know i think when you i think his reputation almost was colored by the frank caliendo impression you know and he became such a caricature of himself Mm -hmm. and you know i I think this season or the season of hard knocks at least kind of shined a light on the fact that he is that crazy but it it's not an act like it and it's very much authentic and guys still respect him and i think a lot of the the outside perception after last year was he's out of touch he's doing things like he exactly like he was in 2002 that doesn't seem to be the case yeah they were like, giving it, him like the joe gibbs 2.0 treatment right i don't think gibbs that's the case at all no. I, th- I think he came away a pretty big winner you know i, I think people who thought he was a, a clown personality wise and think that every coach needs to act like bill belichick probably feel the same that they did before uh but people like me who i, I think were maybe I liked him, the character. I, I w- I'm not sure if I would never, if I would want him to be the Jaguars coach. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I'm more in Gruden's camp now than I was five weeks ago. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad to hear that because yeah, Team Gruden is having a, having a moment right now. I, I think everyone's very excited, and uh, don't they open up on Monday night too? I believe they do. They um, there's two Monday night games, right? Yeah, they, yeah. I love uh, God. I love the uh, the opening where where they yeah. do two. This Monday is one of the nighters. best weekends of the year. Yeah, they uh, they play host to the Denver Nuggets on Monday. They get the late game, of course, oh, yeah, being and, on the West Coast. I mean, luckily he was able to prepare Derek Carr for that for that matchup uh, when he ran at at him yelling, "I'm Von Miller. I'm Von Miller." Yeah. Adam. So he <laughs> so he's ready. He's ready. Um, just because of that. That might have been the highlight of the entire season. <laughs> okay, we. Uh, <laughs> We got to wrap this thing up. Uh, a lot of good college football, as we've been talking about this entire episode, to I look got, forward to. I got three gross uh, lines to throw out there for, for the people real quick. I got UCF minus 10 on the road. Uh, FAU is about to fall apart. I like them. I like uh, Central Florida, that is. I like Vandy plus seven on the road, and I like Akron plus nine at home against UAB. All right. There you have it. Lock it in.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.